This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're talking today about hope and the church. 1 Peter 4, and we're going to look today at verses 7 through 11. Let me ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we look at it together. <clears throat> this is a beautiful picture in this text of the, the, the body life of the the church. First Peter 4, beginning with verse 7, says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. And Father, as we look at this beautiful text on the body of Christ, and as we prepare to take, take part in the Lord's Supper as a, the body of Christ, we, we pray that your spirit would illumine, enlighten our, our minds and our hearts to understand your word right now and to apply your word in our lives. And so we give you this time, we, we pray that you would help us just to be riveted and engaged in, in, what, in what your word says um, today, that you would make this text just, just open up uh, for us and that our hearts would be ready for it. In Jesus' name, amen. One day when I was growing up, <clears throat> I, I walked into my parents' bathroom and I noticed that my dad had put something on the bathroom mirror. It was like a sticky note and he had typed some words on it. And, and, and I, I went up and looked at it, and, and it was actually a, a Bible verse, and it was 2 Timothy 4, 8, which says, there's reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And then he had typed underneath the verse, it could be today, would you love his appearing so clearly, he had, he had put it there on the bathroom mirror where he would stand and shave each morning as a reminder to live each and every day with the end in mind. That's exactly what Peter is saying here in, in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. And when the New Testament writers talk about the, the end times, they're, they're talking about the whole period between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ, which means that we are living in the end times. The question is, how? How should we live until he comes? 
Well, but part of what we should be, be doing, obviously, is helping other people come to know Jesus because there are a lot of people who are not ready for the end to come. And they're not, re- not ready for Jesus to return. They're not ready if their own lives were to end. And, and so we should be proclaiming the gospel. And later on, when we take the Lord's Supper, one of the verses you're going to hear me quote is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six, which says, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so until he comes, we're, we're to be busy about proclaiming the good news of the, the gospel. And until he comes, we are to be investing in the local church that that Jesus loves. Ephesians 5 and and verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Listen, if we love Christ, that, that means we're to love the things that he loves. Christ loves his church. He gave himself for his church. That means that we are to love the church and we are to give of ourselves for the strengthening and the advance of our local church. If you love Jesus, then then you're, you're, you're to love the church that he bled and died for. And what Peter is talking about here in verses seven through 11 is that church. And specifically, what kind of church do we want to be until our king returns? And he he says that we're to be a praying church, a loving church, and a serving church. Let's look at them one by one. First of all, a praying church church. Verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. This is not what we expect him to say in the last two words of this verse. We expect Peter to say, be alert and sober-minded for action. Well, actually, he does say something like that. He said it earlier in 1 Peter, in, in 1 Peter 1.13, we, we saw that he said, therefore with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of of, of Jesus Christ. And so we are to be alert and sober-minded because we want to be ready for action. We also want to be alert and sober-minded because we have a supernatural enemy who's seeking to blow us up. And so we're going to see in chapter 5 and verse 8, that Peter's going to tell us to be sober-minded, be alert, your adversary, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. But, but here, in verse, going back to verse 7, he tells us to be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Now, because of our sin nature, our default is not to prayer. <laughs> our default is to self-reliance. But Jesus tells us in John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing. But with the power of God, then nothing is impossible. Matthew 19 and verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
I love Jeremiah 32, 17. Oh, Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. So that being the case, why would we not want to prioritize prayer? (laughs) There's a reason why Peter puts this first. Our tendency is to put prayer last, is to kind of make our own plans and then just kind of throw up a prayer at the very end and ask God to bless what we've already decided to do. But, but no, Peter puts it first, right? Because more than anything else, you know, we need the power and the intervention of God on our lives and in our church. And so we're to be a praying church. Now, listen, the church is made up of individuals, Right? And, and, and so uh, it means you becoming a person of prayer in your everyday life and prioritizing prayer in your everyday life. And it also means that, that corporately as a church, not only in our worship services, but in our classes and Bible studies and ministries and meetings or whatever we do, that, that we bathe that in, in prayer, a praying church. We need to be praying for our new church year. Let's be praying for who's your one coming up in, in September. Be praying for lost people in your lives by name, family members, friends, people you go to school with, people you work with. Be praying for them to come to know Christ and be praying for opportunities for you to invite them and share the gospel with them. A praying church. Second, a loving church. A loving church. Church, He calls us to, to love. Verse 8. Peter says, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter earlier in the letter called us to love. We saw in chapter 1 and verses 22 and 23, since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So notice here that a mark of the fact that we have been born again is that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 3 and verse 14 says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Again, the, the, the mark of a Christian the mark of one who has been truly born again, the mark of one who has passed from death to life is what? We love our brothers and sisters. And so listen, if somebody doesn't want anything to do with the church, there's every reason to question, have they really passed from death to life? Because if you love if you love someone, kind of a, you know, a baseline would be that you want to be with them. And so if somebody doesn't want to be with their brothers and sisters, they don't care anything about the church, or kind of being a a part of a church, there's reason to question, have you really passed from death to life in that case? Because John says that if you have, 
then there's going to be a love in your heart for your brothers and sisters. What about if somebody attends the church, but they don't love their brothers and sisters? That's even more problematic, right? And that's what he's, that's what he's talking about here is, as, he, as he says, going back to verse 8 again. He says, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. What does he mean by that? Love covers a multitude of of sins. Well, it's a quote from the Old Testament, specifically from Proverbs 10 and verse 12. So let's look at Proverbs 10, 12. Whenever, Whenever you see a quote in the New Testament from the Old Testament, the first thing you should do is go back to that original quote from the Old Testament and see the context of that because that'll shed light on why the New Testament writer was using it at that point. And Peter here is, is, is referring to Proverbs 10.12 when he says love covers a multitude of sins. Well, Proverbs 10.12 says hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. So Proverbs 10.12 is, is a proverb of contrast. He's contrasting two things. And he's saying here that, that if, if someone wrongs you, and if, if, if someone, let's say in the church, right, you feel like they've hurt you in some way, there are a couple of different responses to that. One response would be to let the devil get involved in it and let hatred rise in your heart. And, and you become filled with a, a resentment and maybe you try to, you fly back at them or you try to retaliate to, uh, at them or maybe say something that you shouldn't or maybe you go around and talk about them and murmur about them and so forth. So, so what does that do? He says, it, what? It stirs up, right? Hatred stirs up the conflict, right? It makes it spread, it metastasizes it. But what? But love covers all offenses. And so in that case, instead of, you know, letting hatred rise in your heart and, you know, seeking to retaliate or talking uh, in a way that you shouldn't to them or about them or, or, or whatever, you say to yourself, you know what, I feel like I've been wronged here. I, I'm, I, I'm, I feel like I've been hurt here by my brother or sister. But you know what, <laughs> whatever I feel like that they've done to me is, doesn't even compare to all the ways that I have sinned against God and, and God, instead of treating me in the way that I deserve to be treated, he gave his son for me. And Jesus shed his blood so that my offenses could be covered. And so instead of letting hatred win the day and, and getting back at my brother or sister, I am going to forgive them as God has forgiven me. I'm gonna treat them with grace as God has treated me with amazing Grace. So what does that do? Instead of stirring up the conflict, it stops the conflict, right? That's what he's talking about here. Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. And so in, in, in verse 4-8, when Peter says that, that love covers a multitude of sins, he's saying kind of the same thing that Paul says in the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13-5 when he says that love does not 
keep a record of wrongs. Aren't you glad God doesn't keep a record of wrongs <laughs> against us? Instead, what did God do with our record of wrongs? Colossians 2 and verse 14 says he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. We remember that as we prepare to come to the Lord's table in, in just a few minutes. Listen, we take the Lord's Supper together as a church family. And that, that means that there should be no, no, uh, no grudge holding, no, no holding of a record of wrongs against a brother or sister. We're to be together, we're to be united, we're to, we're to treat one another with grace, we're to forgive as we have been forgiven. And, and when we remember what Jesus has done for us, when we remember that he doesn't, he, he's not keeping a record of wrongs, but that that record of our wrongs was nailed to the cross. When we understand how much we have been forgiven, how much grace we have been treated with by God, how he did not treat us as we deserve, but he gave his son for us. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's what enables us to have tender, forgiving hearts toward brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it means. It says love covers a, a multitude of, of sins. And then in verse nine, um, Peter gives us a, a, a practical way to show love. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. So in the first century in which this was written, traveling gospel workers, missionaries. There were no hotels that they would stay in. And so in Acts, we see people like Lydia putting up missionary teams in their homes. And that was just a very uh, common thing as, as people uh, traveled around and, 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 and seeking to advance the, the gospel. They needed to be, to be put up in the, the homes of church members. But not only that, there were no church buildings at all. And so they worshiped in homes. They, it, there, was no, there was no choice. And so it was, it, it was absolutely necessary for people in the church to open up their homes so that the, the church could come together and worship. So in today, even though we have church buildings, the command to be hospitable to one another without complaining still stands. And there is still such a power when brothers and sisters can gather in a home environment, you know, for studying the word together, for fellowship. It's such a, it's so powerful when you can be in kind of a relaxed home environment where relationships can be formed and relationships can deepen. And so as believers, we should think of our homes or our apartments not as kind of, you know, the, the castles that we retreat to and that, you know, we close the doors and that we own. No, we, we should think of, think of our spaces as bases for ministry, for discipleship, for fellowship, for evangelism. You know, just one of the most powerful things that we can do as we, we seek to, to share Christ with other people 
You know, we're talking about, uh, you know, in September, who, who's, your, who's your one? And, and praying for people in our lives that, that need to know Christ. Just one of the most powerful things you can do is share the table with them. When you read the Gospels, we see Jesus is constantly doing this with people. Sitting across the, the table. It just, it's a setting that the Holy Spirit can use as just part of, part of opening the hearts of people. There's a great book that's been written on hospitality in the past couple of years. I commend it to you. This is The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. It's a wonderful book on hospitality, but, but her story is an incredible story about how God uses hospitality. Because Rosaria was a professor at Syracuse. She was a, 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 a militant lesbian activist. She had no use for Christians whatsoever. Uh, in fact, she had written an opinion piece in the local paper that was just a diatribe against Christians. And she got lots of mail coming back from what she had written. And some people were coming at her and other people were praising her. But then there was one letter that didn't fit neatly into either category. It was a letter from a local pastor. And this, this pastor, um, it, and it was inviting her to come to his house and to sit down with he and his wife and to just talk, to talk about some of the things that she had written and, and, and so forth. It was, it, was, it was an invitation. Well, she, she balled it up, threw it in the trash can. <laughs> but, but then, a few minutes later, she found her hand reaching into the trash can. <laughs> And, and, and opening that letter up again and reading it again. And then to her amazement, within a week or so, she found herself sitting down at the table in the home of this Christian couple. And she discovered that they loved her. And over the course of time and many other shared meals together, she discovered that she loved them. And over the course of that time she, she began to be intrigued by their faith and Rosaria began to, to, to read the Bible and she began to read it more and then to her amazement she found herself sitting in a service like this around a bunch of people that she before she just couldn't stand. <laughs> and before long she found herself not only in church but she found herself in Christ. Her life transformed. God used simple love, simple hospitality. There's a power in that. We need more of that in our culture today. Um, It's part of love, okay? A loving church. So a praying church, a loving church. Third, a serving church, a serving church. Verse 10. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very varied grace of God. So he says each one has received a gift. What kind of a gift? Well, the Greek word is charisma, and so charis is grace, and so charisma is a grace gift, right? These are gifts of God's grace. We sometimes call them spiritual gifts or grace gifts gifts. What does he say about them? Well, who has received them? Verse 10. Just as each one has received a gift. Every believer 
has received one or more spiritual gifts with which to serve the Lord and build up the body of Christ. To say that a Christian doesn't have a spiritual gift is like saying that they don't have the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're in Christ, you most certainly do have the Holy Spirit, which means that you have one or more spiritual gifts to serve the Lord with. What else does he say about them? He says they're received, right? Just as each one has received a gift. So whatever your gift is, it's not something that you should be puffed up about because it was given to you. You just received it as a gift from God. What else does he say about it? What are we to do with these gifts? We are to use them. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards. Jesus told lots of stories about stewardship. You remember the parable of the talents? And so each of these guys is given a certain amount of these talents, you know, a unit of, of money. Um, and there were some who, who put it to work and who made even more, but there was one guy who buried it in the ground. We're not to, we're not to bury our spiritual gifts in the ground. We are to use them. We're to think of ourselves not as owners, but as managers of everything that God has given. You know, whether it's our money or our, you know, our homes, as we were just talking about, you know, or our, um, our time or our spiritual gifts. We're, we're to be good stewards of them, which means that we are to, to use them. If you're not using your spiritual gift to build up the body of Christ, that's dishonoring to the God who gave you that gift. You say, but I'm not sure I even know what my spiritual gift or gifts, I don't know what they are or what it is. What, what do I do? Three quick things, okay? First of all, begin praying. God is not interested in withholding this information from you, I can promise you. God wants you to know what your spiritual gifts are, right? So pray about it. Second, begin reading um, about spiritual gifts. So look at the passages in the New Testament that talk about them. This one, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. What does the Bible say? Third, begin serving in the church. Roll up your sleeves and get to work. Look for opportunities to help in the church and begin helping. Look for needs that you see and begin seeking to meet those needs. And as you involve yourself, your spiritual gift or gifts will become clear. I love this last phrase in verse 10. It's beautiful. The, the varied grace of God. As I was working on this message, I, I looked out the window and I saw, you know, hundreds and maybe thousands of, of, of shapes and sizes of leaves and plants and trees and clouds and a blue sky. And I was thinking about the fact that in a couple of months, the leaves are going to be thousands of more shades and colors because God is a brilliant artist who paints with great variety. And he does that in the church. 
the church is made up of, of people of, of, with different backgrounds and different personalities and different gifts that they bring to the table. But when people are loving one another and everybody gets to work, powerful. Verse 11, he talks about the variety of gifts even more. He says, if anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter divides the spiritual gifts into two categories. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. Um, Speaking gifts would be things like preaching and teaching. Serving gifts would be gifts that are more behind the scenes. Let's take a look at, at, at both of them. First of all, the speaking gifts. If anyone speaks, he says, let it be as one who speaks God's words. In other words, if you've been given a, a, a teaching gift, you know, which includes preaching, right? But whether it's preaching or teaching a class or teaching a study or, or whatever, it, any kind of teaching, then it is absolutely critical that those who are exercising their speaking gifts are doing so faithfully and biblically. That what they are teaching reflects not kind of, you know, their own opinion or uh, their own hobby horse or their own own agenda, but that it's what? God's words. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words, you know, which is why a core value of our church is expositional preaching and teaching where we're actually digging into the text of scripture so that it's God's words that that are that we're learning, right, and, and, and applying, right? And then he says, if anyone serves. So here, he's talking about the beautiful mosaic of the gifts that are more behind the scenes but are no less important and valuable to the body of Christ. It doesn't matter how gifted the preachers and the teachers in a church are without the people who are behind the scenes and quietly using their serving gifts, a local church would grind to a halt. We need everybody, you know, working together. And notice here that he's careful to add that no matter what your gift is, whose strength are you to do it in? He says that we're to do it in the strength From the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. Again, in our sin nature, our default is self-reliance. But he says here that as we seek to exercise our gift, we are to do that leaning on the Lord. And so he's calling us to, you know, to roll up our sleeves and get after it and use our gifts. But as we do that, 
We're to do that leaning, leaning on the Lord for his strength all the way. We're to, be, we're, to be, we're to be working for the Lord and yet worshiping him as we're doing that. We're to be serving the Lord, but yet seeking his face at the same time because ministry has to be the overflow of a relationship with him. Do you have that relationship? Let's pray together. In just a few moments as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, you know, this, this is not something that has meaning <clears throat> apart from a relationship with Christ. Do you know him? Have you entered into that relationship? He invites you into it. The work has been done. Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood for sinners like us so that we can be forgiven and accepted before a holy God. He is risen from the dead. He lives how, how do we respond to that? We respond by repentance and faith. Turn. Turn from trying to do life your own way apart from Jesus. Turn from that way of life and turn to him as your king and trust him. Trust in his finished work. Place all of your confidence, all of your reliance upon Christ and what he has done for you and through his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, turn to Jesus and trust him. Have you done that? That's the only way to know God. That's the only way into a relationship with him. You can do it right now. Turn and trust in the Savior. Only then does the Lord's table have meaning for you. The Bible tells us that as we prepare to, to take part in the Lord's Supper, that, that we're, to, we're to examine ourselves. Where are you, Christian, in your walk with Christ? In the one who died, your relationship with the one who died for you, are you living for him without reserve? Are you withholding from the Lord? Are there things in your life that you need to repent of? Is there a brother or sister that you need to get right with? This is a time for us to reflect and to examine our hearts as we prepare to come to the table. Let's have a few moments of silence as we do that together. And so, Father, now as we prepare to take part in this meal that you have ordained that takes us right to the center of your work, we pray that as Christ is lifted up, that we would be drawn to him. It's in his, in his name that we pray. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. 
Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.